Volume Three, Chapter Three of John Marchmont's Legacy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. John Marchmont's Legacy by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Three, Taking It Quietly. All the county, or at least all that part of the county within a certain radius of Marchmont Towers, waited very anxiously for Mister Paul Marchmont to make some move. The horse-whipping business had given quite a pleasant zest, a flavour of excitement, a dash of what it is the fashion nowadays to call quote-unquote sensation, to the wind-up of the hunting-breakfast. Poor Paul's thrashing had been more racy and appetising than the finest olives that ever grew, and his late guests looked forward to a great deal more excitement and sensation before the business was done with. Of course Paul Marchmont would do something. He must make a stir, and the sooner he made it, the better." matters would have to be explained. People expected to know the cause of Edward Arundel's enmity, and of course the new master of the towers would see the propriety of setting himself right in the eyes of his influential acquaintance, his tenantry, and retainers, especially if he contemplated standing for Swampington at the next general election. This was what people said to each other. The scene at the hunting-breakfast was a most fertile topic of conversation. It was almost as good as a popular murder, and furnished scandalous paragraphs ad infinitum for the provincial papers, most of them beginning, quote, It is understood, or it has been whispered in our hearing that, or Rochefoucauld has observed that. End quote. Everybody expected that Paul Marchmont would write to the papers, and that Edward Arundel would answer him in the papers, and that a brisk and stirring warfare would be carried on in printer's ink, at least. But no line written by either of the gentlemen appeared in any one of the county journals and by slow degrees it dawned upon people that there was no further amusement to be got out of Paul's chastisement, and that the master of the towers meant to take the thing quietly, and to swallow the horrible outrage, taking care to hide any wry faces he made during that operation. Yes, Paul Marchmont let the matter drop. The report was circulated that he was very ill, and had suffered from a touch of brain fever which kept him a victim to incessant delirium until after Mr. Arundel had left the county. This rumour was set afloat by Mr. Weston, the surgeon, and as he was the only person admitted to his brother-in-law's apartment, it was impossible for any one to contradict his assertion. The fox-hunting squire shrugged their shoulders, and I am sorry to say that the epithets, hound, cur, sneak, and mongrel, were more often applied to Mr. Marchmont than was consistent with Christian feeling on the part of the gentleman who uttered them. But a man who can swallow a sound thrashing, administered upon his own doorstep, has to contend with the prejudices of society and must take the consequences of being in advance of his age. So while his new neighbours talked about him, Paul Marchmont lay in his splendid chamber, with the frisking youths and maidens staring at him all day long, and simpering at him with their unchanging faces, until he grew sick at heart, and began to loathe all this new grandeur which had so delighted him a little time ago. He no longer laughed at the recollection of shabby Charlotte Street, he dreamt one night that he was back again in the old bedroom, with the painted deal furniture and the hideous paper on the walls, and that the Marchmont Towers magnificence had been only a feverish vision, and he was glad to be back in that familiar place, and was sorry on awakening to find that Marchmont Towers was a splendid reality. There was only one faint red streak upon his shoulders, for the thrashing had not been a brutal one. It was disgrace Edward Arundel had wanted to inflict, not physical pain, the commonplace punishment with which a man corrects his refractory horse. The lash of the hunting-whip had done very little damage to the artist's flesh, but it had slashed away his manhood as the sickle sweeps the flowers amidst the corn. He could never look up again. The thought of going out of this house for the first time, 
and the horror of confronting the altered faces of his neighbours was as dreadful to him as the anticipation of that awful exit from the debtor's door which is the last step but one into eternity must be to the condemned criminal i shall go abroad he said to his mother when he made his appearance in the western drawing-room a week after edward's departure i shall go on the continent mother i have taken a dislike to this place since that savage attacked me the other day mrs marchmont sighed it will seem hard to lose you paul now that you are rich you were so constant to us through all our poverty and we might be so happy together now the artist was walking up and down the room with his hands in the pockets of his braided velvet coat he knew that in the conventional costume of well-bred gentlemen he showed to a disadvantage amongst other men and he affected a picturesque and artistic style of dress whose brighter hues and looser outlines lighted up his pale face and gave a grace to his spare figure you think it worth something then mother he said presently half kneeling half lounging in a deep cushioned easy-chair near the table at which his mother sat you think our money is worth something to us all these chairs and tables this great rambling house the servants who wait upon us and the carriages we ride in are worth something are they not they make us happier i suppose i know i always thought such things made up the sum of happiness when i was poor i have seen a hearse going away from a rich man's door carrying his cherished wife or his only son perhaps and i've thought ah oh, but he has forty thousand a year you are happier here than you were in charlotte street eh mother mrs marchmont was a frenchwoman by birth though she had lived so long in london as to become anglicized she only retained a slight accent of her native tongue and a good deal more vivacity of look and gesture than is common to englishwomen her elder daughter was sitting on the other side of the broad fireplace she was only a quieter and older likeness of lavinia weston am i happier exclaimed mrs marchmont need you ask the question paul but it is not so much for myself as for your sake that i value all this grandeur she held out her long thin hand which was covered with rings some old-fashioned and comparatively valueless others lately purchased by her devoted son and very precious the artist took the shrunken fingers in his own and raised them to his lips i'm very glad that i've made you happy mother he said that's something gained at any rate he left the fireplace and walked slowly up and down the room stopping now and then to look out at the wintry sky or the flat expanse of turf below it but he was quite a different creature to that which he had been before his encounter with edward arundel the chairs and tables palled upon him the mossy velvet pile of the new carpets seemed to him like the swampy ground of a morass the dark green draperies of genoa velvet deepened into black with the growing twilight and seemed as if they had been fashioned out of palls what was it worth this fine house with the broad flat before it nothing if he had lost the respect and consideration of his neighbours he wanted to be a great man as well as a rich one he wanted admiration and flattery reverence and esteem not from poor people whose esteem and admiration were scarcely worth having but from wealthy squires his equals or his superiors by birth and fortune he ground his teeth at the thought of his disgrace he had drunk of the cup of triumph and had tasted the very wine of life and at the moment when that cup was fullest it had been snatched away from him by the ruthless hand of his enemy christmas came and gave paul marchmont a good opportunity of playing the country gentleman of the olden time what was the cost of a couple of bullocks a few hogsheads of ale and a wagon-load of coals if by such a sacrifice the master of the towers could secure for himself the admiration due to a public benefactor paul gave carte blanche to the old servants and tents were erected on the lawn and monstrous bonfires blazed briskly in the frosty air while the populace who would have accepted the bounties of a new nero fresh from the burning of a modern rome drank to the health of their benefactor and warmed themselves by the unlimited consumption of strong beer 
Mrs. Marchmont and her invalid daughter assisted Paul in his attempt to regain the popularity he had lost upon the steps of the western terrace. The two women distributed square miles of flannel and blanketing amongst the greedy claimants. They gave scarlet cloaks and poke-bonnets to old women. They gave an insipid feast upon temperance principles to the children of the national schools. And they had their reward, for people began to say that this Paul Marchmont was a very noble fellow after all by Jove, sir, and that fellow Arundel must have been in the wrong, sir, and no doubt Marchmont had his own reasons for not resenting the outrage, sir, and a great deal more to the like effect. After this roasting of the two bullocks, the wind changed altogether. Mr. Marchmont gave a great dinner-party upon New Year's Day. He sent out thirty invitations, and had only two refusals. So the long dining-room was filled with all the notabilities of the district, and Paul held his head up once more, and rejoiced in his own grandeur. After all, one horsewhipping cannot annihilate a man with a fine estate and eleven thousand a year, if he knows how to make a splash with his money. Olivia Marchmont shared in none of the festivals that were held. Her father was very ill this winter, and she spent a good deal of her time at Swampington Rectory, sitting in Hubert Arundel's room and reading to him. But her presence brought very little comfort to the sick man, for there was something in his daughter's manner that filled him with inexpressible terror, and he would lie for hours together watching her blank face, and wondering at its horrible rigidity. What was it? What was the dreadful secret which had transformed this woman? He tormented himself perpetually with this question, but he could imagine no answer to it. He did not know the power which a master passion has upon these strong-minded women, whose minds are strong because of their narrowness, and who are the bonden slaves of one idea. He did not know that in a breast which holds no pure affection, the master-fiend passion rages like an all-devouring flame, perpetually consuming its victim. He did not know that, in these violent and concentrative natures, the line that separates reason from madness is so feeble a demarcation that very few can perceive the hour in which it is past. Olivia Marchmont had never been the most lively or delightful of companions. The tenderness which is the common attribute of a woman's nature had not been given to her. She ought to have been a great man. Nature makes these mistakes now and then, and the victim expiates the error. Hence comes imperfect histories as that of English Elizabeth and Swedish Christina. The fetters that had bound Olivia's narrow life had eaten into her very soul, and cankered there. If she could have been Edward Arundel's wife, she would have been the noblest and truest wife that ever merged her identity into that of another, and lived upon the refracted glory of her husband's triumphs. She would have been a Rachel Russell, a Mrs. Hutchinson, a Lady Nithisdale, a Madame de la Valette. She would have been great by reason of her power of self-abnegation, and there would have been a strange charm in the aspect of this fierce nature, attuned to harmonize with its master's soul, all the barbaric discords melting into melody, all the harsh combinations softening into perfect music. Just as in Mr. Buckstone's most poetic drama we are bewitched by the wild huntress sitting at the feet of her lord, and admire her chiefly because we know that only that one man upon all the earth could have had power to tame her. To any one who had known Olivia's secret, there could have been no sadder spectacle than this of her decay. The mind and body decayed together, bound by a mysterious sympathy. All womanly roundness disappeared from the spare figure, and Mrs. Marchmont's black dresses hung about her in loose folds. Her long, dead, black hair was pushed away from her thin face, and twisted into a heavy knot at the back of her head. Every charm that she had ever possessed was gone. The oldest women generally retain some traits of their lost beauty, some faint reflection of the sun that has gone down, to light up the soft twilight of age, and even glimmer through the gloom of death. But this woman's face retained no token of the past. No empty hull with shattered bulwarks crumbled by the fury of fierce seas, cast on a desert shore to rot and perish there, 
was ever more complete a wreck than she was. Upon her face and figure, in every look and gesture, in the tone of every word she spoke, there was an awful something worse than the seal of death. Little by little the miserable truth dawned upon Hubert Arundel. His daughter was mad. He knew this, but he kept the dreadful knowledge hidden in his own breast, a hideous secret whose weight oppressed him like an actual burden. He kept the secret, for it would have seemed to him the most cruel treason against his daughter to have confessed his discovery to any living creature, unless it should be absolutely necessary to do so. Meanwhile he set himself to watch Olivia, detaining her at the rectory for a week together, in order that he might see her in all moods, under all phases. He found that there were no violent or outrageous evidences of this mental decay. The mind had given way under the perpetual pressure of one set of thoughts. Hubert Arundel, in his ignorance of his daughter's secrets, could not discover the cause of her decadence. But that cause was very simple. If the body is a wonderful and complex machine which must not be tampered with, surely that still more complex machine, the mind, must need careful treatment. If such and such a course of diet is fatal to the body's health, may not some thoughts be equally fatal to the health of the brain? May not a monotonous recurrence of the same ideas be above all injurious? If by reason of the peculiar nature of a man's labour he uses one limb or one muscle more than the rest, strange bosses rise up to testify to that ill usage, the idle limbs wither, and the harmonious perfection of nature gives place to deformity. So the brain, perpetually pressed upon, forever strained to its utmost tension by the wearisome succession of thoughts, becomes crooked and one-sided, always leaning one way, continually tripping up the wretched thinker. John Marchmont's widow had only one set of ideas. On every subject but that one which involved Edward Arundel and his fortunes, her memory had decayed. She asked her father the same questions, commonplace questions relating to his own comfort, or to simple household matters twenty times a day, always forgetting that he had answered her. She had that impatience as to the passage of time which is one of the most painful signs of madness. She looked at her watch ten times an hour, and would wander out into the cheerless garden, indifferent to the bitter weather, in order to look at the clock in the church steeple, under the impression that her own watch, and her father's, and all the timekeepers in the house were slow. She was sometimes restless, taking up one occupation after another, to throw all aside with equal impatience, and sometimes immobile for hours together. But as she was never violent, never in any way unreasonable, Hubert Arundel had not the heart to call science to his aid, and to betray her secret. The thought that his daughter's malady might be cured never entered his mind as within the range of possibility. There was nothing to cure, no delusions to be exercised by medical treatment, no violent vagaries to be held in check by drugs and nostrums. The powerful intellect had decayed, its force and clearness were gone, no drugs that ever grew upon this earth could restore that which was lost. This was the conviction which kept the rector silent. It would have given him unutterable anguish to have told his daughter's secret to any living being, but he would have endured that misery if she could have been benefited thereby. He most firmly believed that she could not, and that her state was irremediable. "'My poor girl,' he thought to himself, "'how proud I was of her ten years ago. I can do nothing for her, nothing except to love and cherish her, and hide her humiliation from the world.' But Hubert Arundel was not allowed to do even this much for the daughter he loved for when Olivia had been with him a little more than a week, Paul Marchmont and his mother drove over to Swampington Rectory one morning, and carried her away with them. The rector then saw for the first time that his once strong-minded daughter was completely under the dominion of these two people, and that they knew the nature of her malady quite as well as he did. He resisted her return to the Towers, but his resistance was useless. She submitted herself willingly to her new friends, declaring that she was better in their house than anywhere else. 
so she went back to her old suite of apartments and her old servant barbara waited upon her and she sat alone in dead john marchmont's study listening to the january winds shrieking in the quadrangle the distant rooks calling to each other amongst the bare branches of the poplars the banging of the doors in the corridor and occasional gusts of laughter from the open door of the dining-room while paul marchmont and his guests gave a jovial welcome to the new year while the master of the towers reasserted his grandeur and made stupendous efforts to regain the ground he had lost edward arundel wandered far away in the depths of brittany travelling on foot and making himself familiar with the simple peasants who were ignorant of his troubles he had sent mr morrison down to dangerfield with the greater part of his luggage but he had not the heart to go back himself yet a while he was afraid of his mother's sympathy and he went away into the lonely breton villages to try and cure himself of his great grief before he began life again as a soldier it was useless for him to strive against his vocation nature had made him a soldier and nothing else and wherever there was a good cause to be fought for his place was on the battlefield End of chapter three volume three